How do you control mobile usage and phone addiction? I can't do it. Is bacon a vegetable? Mmm, bacon. How does fasting and eating later in the day affect your circadian rhythms? What do you do if you get sick of repeating yourself? Do I believe in an afterlife? And what's the best fasting protocol for women? These are the topics of today's Body, Mind, Empowerment podcast Q&A episode. I'm your host, Seamland, and turn off your social media distractions, put away your bacon vegetables, because it's going to be an amazing show. We'll do it live. Body, Mind, Empowerment. Get stronger, faster, smarter, quicker, friendlier, more helpful, more driven. Everything the body needs. Control your mind. Okay, let's start off with maybe probably the most serious and most immediate question we should deal with. How do you control mobile usage and phone addiction? This is a very common problem amongst today's people, especially the younger generation. You know, I'm still relatively young and uh, I'm a millennial, but I still grew up without technology most of the time. We didn't have a computer or even a regular phone at our house until middle school and my parents always restricted the time me and my brother got to watch TV or play video games. So um, I think like looking back I'm pretty fortunate that uh, I grew up doing what regular kids have been doing like you know playing outside, climbing trees, drawing pictures, fighting each other with my brother, (laughs) doing sports and spending time in nature. But today's generation of kids they're growing up at houses where technology is the normal and they're exposed to these things even as babies. How many kids do you know whose parents already got them a smartphone? You know, they're still in kindergarten, but they still already have their iPhone. What? Don't get me wrong, I love technology and it's amazing for the development of the human species, but at the same time, we have to be wary of the fact that it may not affect your children's development in a positive way. And this doesn't apply to just kids, I mean, Adults are even more addicted to their smartphone, and you can see these trends all around you. The first thing most people do after waking up is checking their Instagram or reading some sort of an online news. That's where all the problems come from, uncontrolled use. It's the uncontrollable aspect that is uh, is causing the issues, because everyone is able to control what they consume in what amounts and at what time, much more so than ever before in history. You can literally create your own echo chambers of information and uh, social groups. It's like social media obesity, access to unlimited amounts of information and calories. That's why you have to make sure that you're the one who's controlling your behavior instead of being controlled by Facebook or your smartphone. Where's my phone? It's an addiction like anything else. And the way you overcome this addiction is by creating a certain set of rules for yourself. I like to use the idea of fasting as a metaphor describing this. I myself am creating a lot of content online and my entire business, podcast, blog, it's on the internet. I need to spend more time on social media and in front of a screen just because it's what I do for a living. And a lot of people are more becoming financially supportive of themselves through online media. However, I'm still very strict about how and when I use these apps. So here's what I do. First, I'm keeping my smartphone on airplane mode 80% of the day. I only turn it on when I actually have to check something, like I'm gonna download some sort of a new podcast episode, I'm gonna call someone, or I'm gonna deliberately start replying to my DMs on Instagram. At other times, I'm, I'm quite difficult to reach by just phone. Secondly, all the notifications on my phone are also turned off. 
no pop-up icons, no attractive-looking red numbers on the app icons, no distractive apps on the home screen, and, you know, whatever they may be. You want to keep them all off because they make you more reactive. Whenever you get a blinking sound, like bling, bling, you're immediately going to get triggered into wanting to check it out. Oh no, it might be important. What if there is an asteroid heading towards Earth? And I'm about to die. The truth is that 95% of the time it's irrelevant and just some random noise. The other 4% of the time it may be something important, but it can most definitely wait a few hours. And the last 1% of the time it's really important, like, yeah, there is an asteroid coming or there's a nuclear missile heading towards your house, but then there's not much you can do about it either. Squirrel. Third, my social media status on all the platforms like Facebook Messenger are also turned off so I could appear as being offline and invisible. This is again so people wouldn't start messaging me randomly and uh, yeah, there's this trend of wanting to ask me questions about, you know, hey, hey, like, uh, I'm following the keto diet for a few weeks and I have these problems, this and that, these are my macros, you know, blah, 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 can you give me uh, some tips, you know, <laughs> as much as I would like to help you people and give you advice, you know, my time and attention span, they're limited and I'm not going to waste, and I'm not going to waste my time when I could, you know, make it more productive for more people rather than just you individually. And don't get me wrong, like, I've been literally answering to 90% of all the comments on my YouTube videos ever since I started making them. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of comments, there's a lot of Instagram DMs, there's a lot of Facebook messaging, and I tried to reply to like, yeah, 90% of them, but I'm not gonna be, you know, writing out a specific blueprint just specifically for you, <laughs> because it's not worth my time, and uh, we don't have any closer connection or relationship yet, so that's what that's how I do it. Fourth, I'm also not spending any random pleasure time on social media, like mindlessly scrolling through the newsfeed or watching all the Instagram stories of other people. It's another form of information overload, and you may feel like you actually need to consume all of the content just because of fearing you're missing out on something. I myself like to think of as a content creator, not a content consumer, and it's very rare when I actually do doze off into the newsfeed. The only time I might do something like that for fun is after dinner when, when I'm trying to wind down for the night and I've already spent the rest of the day being productive, but at other times it's almost prohibited. Fifth, when I'm working during the day, I made a deal with myself to not check my email or go on social media until I've spent at least a few hours of doing deep work. Deep work is this period of highly focused work with zero distractions. I literally wake up, do my morning routine, then go in front of my computer and start working for hours, whether to edit videos, write articles, or something else related to my business. This is your most precious time period where you're supposed to do your best work. It doesn't have to be in the morning right after waking up, but if you're trying to accomplish any goals or improve yourself as a person, then you need to teach your brain to do deep work without getting distracted. It's really scary. It's neuroplasticity. If you condition your brain to check social media, react to every notification you get on Messenger, and you're going to be distracted, then you're making your brain become more distracted in the future. You're teaching yourself to become more distracted and addicted to these kinds of things. Stop it! Instead, during deep work, 
you have to literally be so deep in the zone that everything else and the world around you doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if there is an asteroid heading towards you, you have to do your deep work. You have to lose your sense of time and self-consciousness, which is a term called flow. This is how all the most creative geniuses, inventors and athletes of the past achieved their greatest results. Undisturbed deep work done consistently every day for many hours. Another useful trick for controlling online distractions is to be more busy during the day. Usually when you do become distracted or absorbed by the newsfeed, it happens when you get bored and you want to entertain yourself and, you know, simply give yourself a pat in the back. You take a small break from work and think to yourself, oh, I'll, I'll just check on Instagram for a minute and BAM! You wasted 20 minutes looking at random stories and pictures. Moral of the story is, pun intended, don't even bother going there if you can't control it. You can maybe use different apps that restrict your time on certain social media platforms like Moment, Off Time and Break Free, but in my opinion, they're somewhat humiliating ways of restricting yourself. There are also these new habit controlling devices like the Pavlok, which is a bracelet that you can program to monitor certain bad habits and then punish yourself for it by giving yourself an electric shock or something. <laughs> I mean, I'm not a dog, I'm especially not Pavlov's dog, and humans, we shouldn't need to have these kinds of things as long as we have enough self-discipline and self-awareness. The problem is that most people don't have any self-control, and they aren't even aware of what kind of behavior they're following during the day. Here's where practices of mindfulness, meditation, stress management, and discipline and perseverance, they're so crucial. You want to basically create a mind that's capable of self-monitoring and self-regulating itself in real time and to always change its operating procedure whenever it's necessary. Whenever you notice that you're starting to get distracted, you acknowledge it to yourself, okay, I'm drifting off a little bit, then you accept it, you don't get frustrated, you don't get anxious, but you'll simply guide your attention back to the task at hand and stay focused like a Jedi again. This way of doing it over and over again is gonna eventually rewire your brain to become more focused and avoid distractions. And lastly, you have to stop seeking validation from these external mediums and other people. It's, yeah, it's true, it's in interesting to see how other people are living, but most people do it just out of boredom and they're afraid of missing out on something. You have to find your own purpose in life and dedicate yourself so hard to it that you don't have time to waste on social media. That's a much more meaningful and more fulfilling way of living than simply scrolling through the newsfeed or reacting to a random like on Facebook. So yeah, think about it. Positive restriction gives you more freedom and it's definitely gonna help you to achieve a lot more with your life. Phone five. Okay, moving on with the second question. What are your views about circadian mismatch due to peripheral clocks dominated by food versus central clocks dominated by light in a later OMAD context? Basically, this question is asking, does food later in the day affect your circadian rhythms more negatively than light exposure? So let's go through some of the basics. What are circadian rhythms? Circadian rhythms are biological rhythms inside your body that are connected with the day and night cycles of the environment. Humans are diurnal creatures, which means that we're active during daytime and we sleep at night. 
Rats and owls are the opposite, they're nocturnal, they're active at night and sleep during the day. With these circadian patterns come distinctive physiological processes that have evolved over the course of eons. They're evolutionary adaptations of creatures living in a certain way that promoted their survival and evolution. That's why there's some genetic variance to every person's circadian code. Think of night owls and morning larks who sleep at different times. However, that difference is, in my opinion, very small and it's only going to differ maybe like an hour or two. There is no human whose natural circadian rhythm would be to be awake after midnight and sleep until noon. Those things are the result of living in a modern world with different type of circadian disruptors and lifestyle factors. Shift work, playing video games until the morning, partying throughout the night, it's unnatural and they're one of the worst things for your health. Everything's a copy of a copy of a copy. There are three main signaling factors that affect the circadian rhythms. Light, movement and food. Most of the circadian signaling is transmitted through your eyes where light enters the retinas and it gets transmitted into the brain where it stimulates the suprachiasmatic nucleus or SCN. The SCN is the master circadian clock in your body that regulates all the other biological rhythms and clocks. There are many different types of clocks and it's thought that most organs like the liver, heart and pancreas actually have their own circadian clock. That's why all these different factors like sunlight, physical exercise and eating, they affect the entire circadian rhythm of your body. So how does light affect your circadian rhythm? If you go outside into the sunshine, then you're exposed to different light frequencies coming from the sun or other artificial light sources. Light is made of many electromagnetic particles or photons that travel through space in a wavelength form. They emit energy and they're represented by different colors. Sunlight's wavelength is called the solar spectrum and it contains ultraviolet, visible and infrared wavelengths. And sunlight is going to have a different wavelength depending on the time of the day and uh, where the sun is located in correlation with the Earth's axis. The human eye can only detect visible light which is seen as either violet, indigo, blue, green, yellow, orange or red light. Blue light exposure to the eyes plays a very important role in regulating your circadian rhythms and day and night cycles. It has antibacterial properties, boosts wakefulness, increases alertness and can adjust the circadian clock. Naturally, the most blue light would be emitted somewhere around 11 a.m. and 1 p.m. during the daytime. Too much blue light at the wrong time can damage your mitochondria, promote insulin resistance, cause insomnia, depression and increase inflammation. Naturally, you wouldn't get exposed to much blue light aside from the early to afternoon parts of the day when the sun is going to emit shorter wavelengths. However, ever since the invention of the light bulb, our environment has many additional sources of blue light. Because of technology and new gadgets, we're getting exposed to more and more blue light for longer periods of time, which then can offset the circadian rhythm and cause damage to our health. Blue light exposure at night and circadian mismatches are linked to many types of cancer, diabetes, obesity, heart disease and Alzheimer's. You wouldn't think that it has a huge role but after you learn about how light affects your body's biological processes you will soon realize that it really is that serious. And you know, thanks a lot Thomas Edison, thanks a lot for <laughs> giving us this artificial blue light, artificial sunshine that we can use to be productive 24-7 and, and uh, drive 
the productivity of our society through through the moon but you know our this kind of enlightenment can become our detriment as well unless we know how to control it if you're working at night shift or you tend to stay up late all the time then you have to seriously reconsider what time do you go to bed what t- what type of a job you have and what time do you wake up because it's literally killing you life is pointless and nothing matters and i'm always tired that's why it's super critical for your brain and health to limit blue light exposure in the evening if you're working long hours late in the afternoon then you should use some blue blocking glasses to protect your eyes from too much strain i'm using many different blue blockers the most effective ones are the true dark ones that literally cover your entire eyes and they make you look like Vin Diesel from the movie The Riddick but uh, there are also some less scary ones like blue blocks that actually look quite stylish and uh, there's something that you could wear in public i'll leave all the links to those products in the show notes so you can check check it out secondly you should also install a software called flux or iris on your computer that's going to automatically match the brightness of the screen with the circadian rhythms and on your smartphone it's called twilight sleeping in pitch black darkness with blackout blinds and a sleeping mask is also very good and you you also have to make sure that there are no hidden sources of blue or green light in your house like the alarm clock night lamps red dots on the tv screen smoke detector and you know so on they're all going to emit some blue light you're not afraid of the dark are you When you do some research then you're going to find that blue light at night really is quite scary stuff and is going to shut down melatonin production. Melatonin is the sleep hormone and it's one of the most powerful antioxidants that's going to help to conduct many repair processes in the brain and the body. If you inhibit melatonin then you're going to lower growth hormone which makes it more difficult for you to burn fat and build muscle. and you will also prevent the brain from clearing out the toxins that get accumulated there during the day there are these proteins called beta amyloids that are associated with alzheimers and parkinsons and if you don't remove them during sleep they begin to accumulate there even more so keep in mind that these neurodegenerative diseases they happen over the course of decades and you can begin to show the first signs of alzheimers 10 to 20 years already before you actually get the disease so if you've noticed yourself having brain fog forgetfulness or the inability to focus then you should start taking your circadian rhythms and sleep quality a lot more seriously and uh, i dare to say that at least 70% of modern diseases are actually rooted in circadian rhythm mismatches not just eating too much and moving too little sleep is fundamental and you want to make sure that you follow a proper circadian rhythm but does eating late at night have the same effect theoretically if you spend the entire day fasting then you're suppressing your food circadian rhythm and you're only activating it in the evening when you're starting to eat however there are different things that can offset the food circadian rhythm without having to break the fast drinking water and things like coffee or apple cider vinegar they're going to stimulate certain metabolic processes in the liver which can then set off the liver's circadian rhythm without breaking the fast you don't need to be eating a lot of calories to trigger the circadian processes or to affect it either the same is with light even just a tiny bit of blue light at night can already suppress melatonin production and inhibit your sleep quality 
The same is with autophagy. Even just a small amount of excess calories is going to break autophagy and it's going to start the feeding cycle. When it comes to OMADs and eating most of your food later in the day, then I would say that it's not going to have any negative effect on circadian rhythms directly because it's not the most influential factor. And, you know, fasting and time-restricted feeding, they have other health benefits. Light and movement are much more powerful signals of circadian rhythms and eating food later in the day will be used based on the physiological conditions of the body, i.e. how insulin sensitive you are, at what point, what's your glycogen status and how long you've been fasting. You can already have started the food circadian rhythm in the liver by, you know, drinking some coffee or drinking some apple cider vinegar during the daytime. So there is no mismatch in the, in the sense that you're not missing out on the activation of these metabolic processes. You'll simply turn them on and you'll stay in a fasted state. And staying in a fasted state is probably not going to have any negative effects on your circadian rhythms just by itself. Fasting can only have a negative impact on circadian rhythms and your health if it's going to disrupt your sleep. If you eat too much food too close to bedtime, then your gut is going to have to spend extra energy on digestion. This can make you sleep worse. It's going to prevent your brain from going into deeper stages of sleep, prevent the clearance of beta amyloids and other antioxidant processes. During the night, the body would naturally start to cool itself down as to preserve energy and go into repair mode. Your core temperature would drop. However, eating and digesting food, it can raise your core temperature, which is going to take away energy from those repair processes. Eating at night can also cause bloating, constipation, weight gain and other digestive issues because in order to break down food and digest it, you need to produce a lot of stomach acid and enzymes. If you eat a ton of food and then lay on your back, sit on a couch for the coming night, then you may get acid reflux. You may stop producing hydrochloric acid, which may stop all digestive processes as well. While you're sleeping, the food will then start to sit there in your stomach and uh, you'll only start to resume digesting it after waking up in the morning. This is going to make you feel like you're in a food coma because first, you didn't get enough deep sleep, second, you're still digesting the food from the night before, and third, certain foods may have begun to ferment in the small intestine, especially fructose and carbohydrates, because they got stuck there for the entire night. And this can cause leaky gut, some bacterial overgrowth, autoimmune disorders and brain fog. So it's not a good idea to be eating immediately before going to bed. It depends on the type of food and what macronutrients there are in the meal, but you should expect to digest the food that you eat for at least 4 hours. The optimal time frame for stopping eating before sleeping would be about 2-4 to four hours at, at least. Do you ever stop eating? What you also want to do is spend a little bit of time moving around after eating. Walking is one of the best ways of lowering your postprandial blood sugar. It's going to promote digestion, increase nutrient absorption and help with gastric emptying. I recommend to go for a slow and steady walk for 10-15 to 15 minutes after dinner and it's going to help to speed up digestive processes. Keep in mind that this shouldn't be a type A speed walking stroll or anything hyped up because if you push it too much then you're going to trigger the sympathetic nervous system which will actually shut down digestion again. That's why you must never be stressed out or anxious when eating. 
you're literally not going to digest what you're eating and it's going to sit there until you go back into a parasympathetic state of rest and relaxation. Deep belly breathing exercises before and after the meal are also great. Tai Chi, meditation and foam rolling, they can also relieve the tension of your body and you may actually get like a sudden bowel movement just because you've been so tight and you've hold on to this stress for so long. Especially if you're not doing fasting, then chances are your gut holds at least one to two pounds of food or dead bacteria just because you're constantly staying in a fed state. That's why daily time-restricted feeding and intermittent fasting, they're incredibly great for your overall health and also your gut microbiome because you're literally going to give your digestion a break and it's super good for clearing out that junk that gets accumulated there, even if you're eating a very healthy diet. I eat when I'm upset, okay? Coming back to the circadian rhythms, to make sure that you're not causing any mismatch with your chronobiology, you want to ensure that you have the other circadian signaling factors on point as well. First, expose yourself to natural daylight in the morning for at least 5 to 10 minutes. That's gonna offset the right processes via the suprachiasmatic nucleus in the brain. You're gonna sleep better at night, you'll have better mood, and you will also start the metabolism to a certain extent as well. Second, after waking up, you should get yourself moving as well. Do some mobility exercises, go for a walk, shake yourself, rebounding, and do some breathing exercises. Some deep belly breathing exercises are especially great in the morning, and it's like a meditation. Movement is also a very powerful circadian cue, and you want to stay active throughout the day for several times. Third, during the day, Restrict your caffeine intake. The half-life of caffeine is 4 to 6 hours, which means that if you drink coffee at noon, 50% of it will still be in your system at 5 p.m. That's why the last time you can safely ingest caffeine is 1 to 2 p.m. After that, you may decrease your sleep quality. But because so many people are addicted to caffeine, I would also actually recommend everyone to postpone their coffee intake all the way until the noon time because you shouldn't need caffeine to wake yourself up in the morning. When you wake up, you should feel energized and alert immediately because of cortisol. Cortisol is the stress hormone that's gonna wake you up and at least that's what's supposed to happen if you have proper circadian rhythms. Taking coffee just because so you could feel normal again is only gonna mask the symptoms of adrenal fatigue which cover much more deeper issues related to sleep and circadian rhythms. Like I said, coffee is also a circadian signaler that offsets the liver's circadian clock. So I would say it's a good idea to postpone your first cup of coffee a few hours after waking up as to allow your digestion to rest and induce deeper cellular autophagy. Coffee stimulates autophagy to a certain extent as well, but only in small amounts and not all the time. That's why the mid-noon small coffee break can be a good way to promote autophagy and give yourself some energy until the evening as well. Planet Starbucks. Another question I got asked was, will drinking coffee with a little bit of milk or calories, like 50 milliliters, will it give me any benefits of fasting? Well, it's definitely going to stop autophagy and put you into a fed state, but it's not necessarily going to stop ketosis. You can still lose fat with it, as long as your other daily calories are kept at a negative energy balance, but you won't get a lot of the other health benefits.
There's also the problem that those small amount of calories will break the fastest state. But because you're not consuming other essential macronutrients like protein, you will also go into a catabolic mode. Your body wants to repair itself because it got the signal of eating, but there's not much building blocks from that 50 milliliters of milk. There's not many protein in that. That's why it's always better to not eat anything and break your fast with, you know, only real food that's going to stimulate some protein synthesis and that's going to actually give you some nutrients rather than giving yourself inadequate nutrients, shifting yourself into a fed state and starting to seek out the amino acids and proteins from your own lean tissue and basically getting skinny fat. I myself drink only one single cup of coffee at noon and by that time I've been actually fasting with zero nutrient intake. If you're feeling tired in the morning or you tend to crash in the afternoon then you may suffer from some sort of a chronic fatigue and you know drinking coffee will only make you dependent of more caffeine. It's a good idea to cycle off caffeine as well to remain sensitive to it whether by avoiding it for five to seven days out of a month or drinking it only every other day or so. Drinking coffee without a reason will also make you offshoot cortisol which can make you fat, more stressed out and more tired. That's why I drink coffee only when I'm about to use that caffeine for a workout or some sort of a creative writing process or something. Other circadian factors related to eating have to do with the type of food you eat as well. Some nutrients like tryptophan and serotonin can actually make you sleep better and promote relaxation. Both carbohydrates and protein specifically have these nutrients and they're great to eat for dinner. Getting some protein before going to bed can also be good for providing enough amino acids for your muscles and neurotransmitters for the night. In general, most people find it easier and more convenient to skip breakfast and eat later in the day. I would say that it's slightly better for the circadian rhythms as well and to not eat anything at least until noon. There's the idea that eating a lot of carbs in the morning will be better because you're gonna burn off those carbs during the day. But the problem is that if you're eating before doing anything then you're only gonna be burning the food that you ate. In the opposite example of working out in a fasted state, you've depleted your body's glycogen stores and all the food you eat afterwards will be used for repair and recovery instead of fat gain. If you spend a lot of your calories before training, which you don't really need, you can very successfully work out in a fasted state, then you won't have too many calories left for the post-workout meal. And I would say that it's generally better to eat less before the workout and eat more after the workout when it comes to body composition purposes and promoting recovery as well because you're going to use those nutrients much more efficiently. In conclusion, light is more important of a circadian signaler than food but you definitely don't want to eat a lot of food right before going to bed. The optimal time frame to stop eating for the night is about 2 to 4 hours and you would sleep a lot better if you don't have a lot of food sitting in your stomach. Fat is it? Continuing on with the next question. What's the best intermittent fasting protocol for women? There is indeed a lot of talk about how women shouldn't do intermittent fasting and that it's gonna mess up their hormones. It may have some truth to it but I would say it's not because of some sort of a biological mismatch or under-adaptation. Physiologically, there isn't much difference in fasting between men and women. Everyone can do it as long as they can. 
the reason why women may respond to fasting more negatively may have to do with other sex-specific factors like the psychology and the way they process their emotions. My theory is that because women are hardwired by evolution to be the caretakers of the family, they're also primed to be more emotional. Of course, it varies between individuals, but I believe that no one can argue that in general women are more emotional than men. Because of that, they may respond to the physiological stressor of fasting differently as well. When men would simply shrug it off and grind through, women may be more prone to feel worse because of their emotional sensitivity. Emotional sensitivity is higher in the female psychology because, because they need the higher emotional intelligence and empathy for being able to read what their children and what their family members are silently conveying to them to basically read their emotions. That's gonna have at least some somatopsychic effect on how they're reacting to fasting as well. They may also start reacting to outside events and other people differently because they feel differently, which in turn can make fasting become an additional stressor. There's also some truth that male hormones and reproduction are evolutionarily less valuable. In a tribal setting, <laughs> men are quite expandable because they have a lot of extra sperm and they can have more than one mate. Females, however, have a limited number of eggs and therefore they have to be more careful with what mate they choose and how they protect their offspring. If the body detects that it's in a very dangerous environment by detecting more stress hormones in the blood, then it's gonna lower reproductive hormones because it's not the best time to give birth to children in a dangerous environment. It's a defense mechanism. In the short term, it's not an issue, but chronic stress will eventually make women lose their periods and lower their fertility as well. That's why everyone, including men and women, have to be mindful of how big of a stressor fasting is in their lives. If you're doing OMAD combined with mad crossfit wads, low-carb diets, inadequate sleep, three screaming kids in the minivan, a pile of dirty dishes in the sink and no time for rest, then of course you're gonna mess up your hormones. At that point, fasting is only one of many contributing factors that affect this. What's the best IF protocol for you specifically depends on your lifestyle, your body composition and your goals. Generally, the minimum I recommend everyone to fast is 16 to 18 hours because that's not real fasting and you're, you're gonna get used to it quite fast. You should be able to do this kind of time-restricted feeding without any coffee or other stimulants as well because you want to keep your cortisol controlled all the time. How long you can fast depends on your workout routine as well. If you exercise right before breaking the fast, then you can fast for 20 hours or do one meal a day quite successfully because you'll be burning your body fat during the fast without going catabolic and then when you break the fast, you're gonna immediately refuel yourself and start repairing. If you work out somewhere in the middle of the fast and then continue fasting post-workout for many hours, then it's gonna be more difficult for you to progress in your training or to maintain muscle because it becomes an additional stressor. Whatever the case may be, you shouldn't feel the need to be eating any more than twice a day. And how you choose to do it depends on your circumstances and your goals. You shouldn't get caught up with thinking that Oh, you have to stick to this one protocol all the time and that if you're eating any more than once a day, you're basically getting cancer and gaining fat. 
That's where a lot of eating disorders and poor food habits get created. What matters more is what you do consistently and how many calories you're consuming during the entire day. Next question. Sprinting while fasting. Sprinting while fasting is amazing and studies show that these kind of leg exercises like squats, lunges, sprints and jumps boost a lot of growth hormone. What's more, fasting also raises growth hormone after about 24 hours of fasting. So what I usually do on my extended fasts is I do a very short but intense hit session for maybe 5 minutes. My favorite exercises are burpees, jumping squats, kettlebell swings and sprints. Most of my cardio is actually done like in a Tabata session and it's only going to take me 5 minutes. I, do it, I usually do it on days that I don't have a lot of time to work out and it's going to be really quick. Just 5 minutes of near maximum intensity with very short rest breaks is really all you need if you're already exercising consistently at other days. You don't need to do a ton of cardio to gain the cardiovascular benefits. Sprinting while fasting is great and exercising itself in a fasted state whether with weights or regular cardio is always going to have higher growth hormone responses than if you had been eating before. Now you have to keep in mind that growth hormone doesn't mean you're going to be building muscle specifically. Growth hormone is more like an anti-catabolic hormone that inhibits muscle loss, makes you more protein conserving and promotes fat burning. Growth hormone is like a hormonal facilitator for getting leaner and building new tissue but it only happens at night because most of the growth hormone gets released during the first parts of the night between 11 p.m. and 2 a.m. That's why it's important to get quality sleep before midnight so your body could actually repair itself. Another proof that circadian mismatches not only give you diabetes but also make you fat. Also, I can't sleep. I'm overeating. Next question. Is bacon a vegetable? Now the immediate answer to that would be, well of course dumbass, bacon is not a vegetable, it's pork, it's meat. You are stupid. But I want to kind of turn this question around a little bit and uh, talk about the health benefits of this kind of pork, bacon and uh, vegetables. You know, after decades of people saying that saturated fat and meat is bad for you, you think that, you know, yeah, Bacon and pork are one of the worst things for your health. But you may be surprised that according to a BBC report in January 2018, researchers who analyzed more than 1,000 raw foods found that pork fat was ranked number 8 in a list of 100 foods, which is going to provide the best balance of a person's daily nutritional requirements. Yep, it's quite crazy to think about it. It listed as containing, quote, a good source of B vitamins and minerals, as well as being more unsaturated and healthier than lamb or beef fat. The scientists also said that pork fat is actually rich in oleic acid and contains 60% monounsaturated fat. I want to quote, Monounsaturated fat and oleic acid are beneficial to our heart, arteries and skin and it can also regulate our hormones. However, excessive consumption of fatty pork will lead to obesity, so it's best to eat it with vegetables. The scientists concluded that as long as the meat is not processed and doesn't contain processed lard, 
then the meat should be beneficial to our health with moderate consumption. The salted pork is particularly good. So it all kind of goes back to that animal products are tend to be very nutritious actually, as long as they're consumed in the context of a healthy diet and healthy lifestyle. Of course, if you combine pork fat with high amounts of sugar and carbohydrates, then yeah, you're going to get insulin resistance and diabetes. But on a low-carb, whole foods-based diet, that's really not the case, as long as you keep it moderate. Here are the other top 10 most nutritious foods according to the study. Number 1, almonds. Number 2, cherry moja, which is a type of fruit. Number 3, ocean perch, which is a deep water fish. Number 4, flatfish. Number 5, chia seeds. Number 6, pumpkin seeds. Number 7, Swiss chard. Number 8, pork fat or pork belly. Number 9, beet greens. And number 10, snapper. Just give me all the bacon and eggs you have. So yeah, although it sounds that you can safely consume some bacon, it's still a good idea to keep it moderate and definitely eat some vegetables as well to gain the other nutritious benefits. I'm also skeptical about whether or not pork is healthier than beef. And I'm not sure how exactly it's going to answer the question, is bacon a vegetable? But uh, it's still an interesting study. That is so much better than ham. Next question. What do you do if you get sick of repeating yourself? It's true that when you're trying to convey an idea or a message to someone else, then more often than not, they're not gonna get it immediately. Your reaction might be distraught or annoying because you're the one who actually gets it. The other person must be a moron if they don't get it the first time. Even if you repeat it several times, they might still not get it. And I think that everyone has been in a similar situation and you can relate to it. Before judging and criticizing them, you have to remember that everyone experiences the world only through their subjective perspective. That perspective has been molded by their epigenetic lineage as well as the person's psychological development so far. You can't say that someone with a different worldview is morally inferior, because as far as objective truth is concerned, then you're also full of shit and you're not getting it. It's very difficult to come to terms with what is the objective truth, because what we think is the truth is always influenced by the subjective perceiver who is observing what is being observed. Basically, you can never know if you are right or doing the right thing. You can only be sure of what you know so far and act based on that. When it comes to explaining something to others and you find yourself repeating yourself to the point of annoyance, then you have to take a step back and realize that it's all your fault. It's your fault that they're not on the same page, because you failed to explain it to them in a way that would make them understand. It's your fault that they're not getting it, and they're still doing the opposite of what you're expecting from them. It's your fault that you haven't made it clear to yourself first and foremost, as to be able to explain it to other people. Everything is your fault, because you can always be a better teacher, you can be a better learner, and you can be a better communicator. Like Jocko Willing would say, you have to take extreme ownership over everything in your world, because it's gonna put the responsibility on you. 
being responsible makes you more responsible because it's going to determine the outcome of the events and the results you're going to get. This applies to everything. You're sick of repeating the diet. Maybe you should learn how to eat better so you wouldn't have to be on a diet all the time. You're sick of getting sick. Maybe you should condition your body to handle viruses and strengthen your immune system. You're sick of being broke. Maybe you should learn how to earn more money and be more careful with your expenses. You're sick of repeating something to another person. Maybe you should teach them better by actually going through what you're expecting from them step by step. The truth is that you can't expect others to do exactly what you expect from them or to see the world the way you want them to see it. Because like I said, everyone is experiencing the world through their own subjective lens. Your lens is different from mine, and we all have our own preferences and predispositions. That's why when it comes to teaching others or trying to change their behavior, you can't force anything to happen. You have to show them the way so that they could start walking the path themselves. Socrates has an amazing quote, I cannot teach them anything, I can only make them think, which is so true, and that's how any type of teaching slash learning should take place. You have to open up the other person's paradigms and belief systems so that they could create their own way of doing things instead of molding their worldview with your hammer. And I think that that's what I've been trying to do with my YouTube channel, my blog, and this podcast as well. I'm trying to make you think better, instead of simply giving you quick fix solutions of what to do, what to eat, in what amounts, how to do this or that, how to stay focused. I'm actually giving you the tools and principles that you have to learn in order to adopt them. Because that's a much more sustainable way of actually becoming better and making these changes long term. You want to know the principles so that you could learn how to manipulate those principles, whether that be nutrition, exercise, your mindset, psychology, or whatever it may be that we're talking about. There are different types of patterns you have to recognize, and you can find them, in, and once you learn them, then you can see them everywhere you go. The matrix is everywhere. And let's go on with the next question. Do you believe in an afterlife? <laughs> That's a good way to end the podcast. But uh, this is one of those ultimate questions of reality every human has been thinking about for, you know, eons. What's the nature of consciousness? What happens after death? Is there a God? Is the karma of my past lives affecting me right now? And how can I prevent myself from suffering in the future? Those are indeed unsolved mysteries, and I'm afraid that they can't be solved at all. At least the human mind can't possibly give an answer to them because our perceptions are very limited and highly subjective. Reality as you experience it is only a creation of how your mind experiences the world. Whether or not it's the actual reality of reality, it's something to be skeptical about and I don't think that it can be proven. You can't prove the existence of God or an afterlife. And you can't prove the non-existence of God either. Like science, religion, spirituality, psychedelics. None of them have the credulity or means of giving proof to any of those things. 
if someone says that, oh yeah, I've got it figured out, I know the answer, then they probably don't. Even if we do have some sort of a post-human technology or a spiritual transcendence that is going to reveal us some sort of a mystical dimension, then even then you can never be sure that this is it, that this is the end. There's always the potential of another level, another level, another simulation, another level at infinitum. Ironically, this is not far from the truth. Contemplating about an afterlife and God also forces you to think about death. That's also the biggest reasons people think about these possible scenarios in the first place. There must be something more. That I can't just die one day and that's it, I'm just dead. That I'm gonna disappear and vanish away into nothingness. Surely this is all for me. Well, if that's true, then you don't really have nothing to worry about because if there is indeed nothing after death, then you won't be there to experience it either. You'll just be dead. When you're alive, then the anxiety of death may feel like suffering, but when it actually happens, then there won't be anything or anyone to experience it. You'll just be dead. It's not gonna feel painful or uncomfortable because the subjective experience of your body will be gone. Of course, no one knows what's really gonna happen. Maybe you will be put into a boiling cauldron or a furnace of flames, but I think you shouldn't let that be a source of angst right now either. Me, 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 I, I, I'm, I'm so fucking important. What I do believe in is epigenetics. That what you do right now to yourself will have an effect on the future generations and your future offspring. Even if you die, your genes will continue to live, which essentially is you. Hopefully you will have some offspring. That's how evolution has been working so far, and that's how it's gonna carry on for at least the foreseeable future. Epigenetics translates into epi, which means standing above, and genetics, which are your DNA and your genes. Basically, it's a scientific discovery that the environment in which a specific gene is placed plays a much bigger role on the future development of the gene than simply having the gene. It means that if you have certain genetic predispositions for Alzheimer's or heart disease because it's in your family's lineage, then it doesn't necessarily mean that you're gonna have those diseases. You're more likely because of the predisposition, but it's not guaranteed. Other lifestyle factors and habits, they're gonna determine whether or not those genes get activated or not. How your great-great-grandfathers treated their epigenome has affected the genetic makeup of your grandparents, which influenced your parents' genes all the way up to your own genetic blueprint. Now that I speak about it, I think that this is also the closest way of proving the existence of some sort of a psychosomatic karma or causality. Your personality and your perspective of the world is very much determined by your genes and heritage. This is also one of the biggest claims that there is no actual free will. If you have some sort of a predisposition to some disease, then you're gonna behave differently and if your family has certain values or beliefs such as religious practices, being a hard worker or creativity, then you're more likely to adopt those same traits yourself. It's like genetic transmission of certain characteristics that go through their own process of natural selection.
what you as a person have to ask yourself is are these the genes or are these the memes like Richard Dawkins likes to call them are they the ones I want to keep carrying further and do I want to keep them maybe I need to adopt a new set of beliefs and values instead of following the old dogmas and doctrines of what my parents taught me of what their parents taught them of what their grandparents learned from their grandparents and so on you have to also ask what kind of a genome do I want to leave for the future generations because a lot of these issues can be alleviated to a certain extent if you follow good habits and live a healthy lifestyle then you're improving your epigenetic makeup and in so doing you're promoting the health and vitality of your children and their children and their children and so on it really is something to think about extremely carefully bad lifestyle habits like smoking alcohol junk food not sleeping enough being stressed out all the time environmental toxins and afflictive thought patterns they're all changing your physiology on an epigenetic level and that's going to re-manifest itself in the future like a karmic law your children are more predisposed to exhibit those same traits whether they be related to diet beliefs cellular functioning and emotional processing instead of selfishly thinking about how to make sure you're going to have a painless afterlife with no suffering you should worry about how to not cause additional suffering for those people who are left behind and how to not make your children in the future suffer by giving them some sort of a disease or poor lifestyle habits don't leave a heritage of disease and sickness when it could have been easily avoided by eating better exercising a little bit more sleeping better sticking to the circadian rhythm and paying more attention to the little things and that's also the point where you can manifest your free will as little of it as you have and start asking the right fucking questions and i think that's a good point to end the podcast something to think about and while you're at it paying attention to the little things can start with leaving a review for this podcast on iTunes or other social media platforms definitely sharing it with someone else sharing with a friend maybe your children maybe your parents whoever they may be it can have a positive impact on the epigenetic environment of you yourself and those around you so definitely do it even now in this very room but that's it for this episode like it share it thanks for listening my name is Seem stay healthy stay empowered body mind empowerment get stronger faster smarter quicker friendlier more helpful more driven everything the body needs control your mind